This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast from the 19th of August. On the programme today, we had a packed show ahead of the new school term starting in just over a week. Uh, First up, as Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation, calls on schools to promote national identity and culture, we discuss the importance of learning Arabic in schools with Sajida al-Bashir, who's Head of Arabic and Islamic Studies at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We also caught up with author Heidi Young. Now, she's written a book called Speak in Arabic Together, which is the first children's book of its kind written in Arabic, English and phonetic Arabic. And thousands of UAE pupils got their A-level results in the last few days. But in the changing workplace, do A-levels and exam results still carry the same weight? And is it still worth even getting a good degree? We spoke to a university registrar and education analyst and a former teacher. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Schools and universities need to step up their efforts to promote national identity and culture and the Arabic language. That is the message from Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed. He's uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation. But he's also Chairman of the Education and Human Resources Council. So that gives you a bit of a sense of why he's uh, getting preoccupied with what's being taught in schools. He set out the vision during a virtual meeting of the Education and Human Resources Council and that took place this week. Now, he's not the first minister to bring up the importance of the Arabic language. Back in June, the ruler of Sharjah, Sheikh Dr. Sultan, also urged teachers to promote Arabic and Arabic uh, and Arab culture in schools. Now, joining us to discuss how that can be done is Sajida al-Bashir. She is head of Arabic and Islamic studies at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sajida, how are you? Good to have you joining us on the line. Good morning, Judy. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Welcome back to the new season of Ion Education. Welcome back to your new school term starting in just a week. I love the start of the new term. For me, September and the start of the autumn term is more relevant, more of a sort of period of flux than the new year. For example, New Year sort of passes in a in a flash. Whereas for me, yeah. you know, the new season, the new, you know, the, the moment for resolution and and change in your life is the beginning of September. Still is. It's when you it's when you have the kids, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's when I was at school and then it's lasted. And also there is a massive relief in getting the children back in school after the very long summer holiday. That's so true. we true. all celebrate that. Now, the government is keen to champion Arabic. It's come up before. Unsurprisingly, it's coming yeah. up again. Do you think that it needs promoting? I have to say I was quite surprised because my children mm. are obviously British uh, born, if not bred. They've mostly been bred here. They know more about the UAE and the Emirates and the flag and the National Day than I do. Uh, And so I feel like they're sort of that they're pretty aware of the Arab culture. And of course, they have Arabic lessons as well. Uh, But do you think it still needs this extra push? 
Absolutely. Um, this project that we're talking about uh, will will not only make the Emirati culture and values and morals alive, but also for everyone who comes um, uh, to to work or to live or to study in UAE, they need to know the culture as it is. They need to learn about this great nation, great country, and what they are doing to uh, make everyone happy, everyone safe, but also to know exactly what does it mean to be an Emirati to live the Emirati spirit and also to, to learn the language that they speak. It's absolutely amazing project. And um, to be honest, um, uh, UAE is one of few uh, countries uh, which I know that they give all this uh, uh, attention to the Arabic language and actually the, the, uh, the language of Quran. Indeed. I mean, it's uh, it's unsurprising that uh, people who are guests in the country should be expected to, to learn about the values and the culture of that country and also to make an attempt to learn the language. Do you ever worry that English might be taking over and diluting the use of Arabic in this country? Let's be honest here. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a parent and I see my little one who is in year four uh, speaks English very well. Uh, we speak Arabic at home. We speak Arabic uh, outside. We, when we travel uh, and see the family in Jordan, we speak Arabic. And in that period of time, the child, when they when they listen to the Arabic uh, language or any language and they practice it, it becomes uh, stronger and they are more confident in it. Yes, English is is trying and and it may uh, actually control uh, uh, the whole stage. But um, I do urge the Arabic uh, um, uh, families and Arabic speakers is always to practice the language and put it in action. Arabic is a beautiful language. Uh, I'm not saying that because I'm a, an Arab uh, and speak Arabic as my first language. But it's it's a language of music. It's a language of arts and and language of doing. So. Uh, um, at RGS, we teach Arabic through every subject. When the students come to Arabic uh, lesson, doesn't mean that they are separated from the whole school as a community. So Arabic is uh, a language that will, and we will talk about uh, how beneficial it is for everyone to speak Arabic and learn Arabic. But I do have a worry that English, as it's more used in, in UAE, uh, uh, may 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 uh, may take the lead. But um, again, um, uh, projects like our initiatives like uh, what uh, Sheikh Abdullah has uh, launched is important to put Arabic uh, live uh, and put it in front uh, line as well. Okay, so this is quite a, a highbrow sort of esoteric question. It's not sort of very <laughs> practical. But I mean, how important do you think language mm -hmm. is when it comes to identity? It's very important. Language identity, it's part of us, isn't it? So when, when, I'll tell you a true story happened with me in summer. I've, I've traveled to a country where they don't speak English and they don't speak Arabic. It was so hard to communicate. It was so hard to understand the culture, to have the real flavor of it. So identity and language, you can't separate them, to be honest. Um, um, uh, the ability to communicate with people, to have relationship, to have experiences is all based on a language. So it is part of us. It is part of who we are. Uh, how important do you think it is that, that children in the UAE learn Arabic in mm. schools, even if they don't have Arab parents? And I have to admit, within my community, among the Brits and the European community that I speak to, 
People are a bit disgruntled sometimes about mm. the amount of time that is given to Arabic. There's lots of talk about the fact that essentially children don't learn other languages because they need, they have to learn Arabic. To be honest, um, uh, I've heard this from the parents a lot. And when we meet them in the mornings on the job of uh, uh, gates, they always say we're happy for our kids to not only to learn Arabic, but to excel it. Um, uh, it it's a great chance. It's a great opportunity for everyone. Uh, I'm not sure uh, um, about you, Georgia, but did you uh, try to learn Arabic in in, um, in centers and outside of the schools and not to learn from your kids? It's expensive. It costs a lot lot uh need time yeah um so to be honest our kids when they are in uae from fs1 which we do in rgs we offer arabic uh F- from fs1 up to year uh, nine um it's amazing opportunity to uh to excel a, a language which is uh again it's a language can be used in any field of the of the life and when i hear the the parents how how they how much they need to learn Arabic. They always ask us for either ECAs after school. I always tell them, let your kids be the teachers uh, for you at home. Let them teach you what they learn every day. So it is important, uh, not because we live in UAE, but it's it's another language that you, you know the benefits uh, of uh, being bilingual or uh, speaking more than one language. It's amazing. It is. It is. It is a key skill. And and I'm always deeply impressed by anyone who can speak more than one language. I mean, in Europe, you get people who live in sort of France or on the border of France and Italy. Sometimes they can speak four languages without even thinking about it. And I just think of them as incredibly clever and sophisticated. (laughs) Um, Sajida, thank you so much for your time. As always, a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for coming back on and good luck with the new term. I I wish you all the best with it. It's always difficult, I imagine, to get the kids to settle down in those first few days. Uh, That is Sajida Al-Bashir, Head of Arabic and Islamic Studies at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Welcome back to our schools special. It is Eye on Education. Now, we are discussing that government drive to encourage schools and universities to promote national identity and culture and the Arabic language. The priority was announced this week by Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation. He's also Chairman of the Education and Human Resources Council. Now, so many of us have been living here in the United Arab Emirates for years without learning Arabic. I count myself among that number. It is, do you know, it's slightly embarrassing. I've been here eight years now and Do you know, I've made no attempt to learn Arabic, which is just awful. It just shows because you don't need to, because you can communicate so easily with people in English that you just sort of slightly give up. Uh, Although I did make the... um, the resolution this summer, I had a few weeks off. And you know what you do, you know, when you're lying on a on a sunbed and you're thinking, right, OK, well, you know, how can I make that? You know, you read for a bit, you listen to music for a bit, you watch the kids for a bit. And then you do have actually time to ponder on your life choices. Um, and I did decide that that really I did need to to buck my ideas up. And, and that a legacy of living in the UAE, uh, if I ever leave, would be if I was able to speak the language. I think I would feel like I'd really 
you know, added to my CV, added to my sense of culture, added to my national identity uh, by learning Arabic. Very impressed uh, to speak to our producer, Zina, to discover that that she learned loads uh, through uh, YouTube. Uh, So it just goes to show that if you put your mind to it, you can. Now, one person who is helping to both uh, to help both children and adults learn Arabic is author Heidi Young. She's written a book called Speak in Arabic Together. It is the first children's book of its kind because it's written in not just Arabic and English, but also phonetic Arabic, which I can't quite get my head around. So uh, I'm going to speak to Heidi now uh, just to find out how it works. Uh, Heidi, how are you doing? Hi, Georgie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's lovely to have you join us on Microsoft Teams. It sounds like you're in a garden somewhere, which is very delightful. (laughs) Oh, no, an airport. I'm in an airport. I'm in an airport. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, I just just let the background come in then for a minute. I was like, that is not birdsong. That is an airport. No. Um, Well, I really appreciate... It is, it is. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us when you're clearly travelling around the world. Uh, Tell me first, do you... uh, Why did you start writing the book? How did you come to write it? Because really, you're a cybersecurity expert, so it was quite a departure for you. Yeah. (laughs) It is, it is. But, you know, I have a love of languages. And as a child, I moved around, uh, lived in different countries with my family and my parents, obviously. So um, when I moved from Australia to um, to the UAE, I was so excited to, to learn Arabic. And particularly, I have three children and uh, my eldest who started school. And um, I was very excited to see the curriculum and learn because the best way to learn a foreign language is just to start at the basic level, which is at the children's level. However, the uh, challenge that I faced is that all of the children's books, they were written in traditional Arabic. So I couldn't read it. I can't read Arabic. I couldn't pronounce it. I didn't even know where to start. Um, And some of them may be written in Arabic, traditional and English. But even then, I couldn't help my child. I could, we couldn't sit and read a book um, and sound it out together, if you will. So in COVID, in uh, lockdown, when we were all homeschooling our children, and I was trying to help him with his Arabic, and I couldn't, and I started just um, going on Google Translate and just listening to and YouTube and listening to different pronunciations. And that was the challenge as well. There's different pronunciations depending on where you're from. So if you are looking online, you really need to pay attention to um, where that um, they, um, the instructor is from and if it is the same pronunciation to the region that you're in as well. And uh, that's how I started. And I couldn't find any books in any curriculum that had the pronunciation guide. So I figure, let me just write it myself. And that's how it began. <laughs> so I'm looking at a few of the pages uh, online now. And, and it really is fantastic. So you've got, it's a lovely storybook. It's, it's beautifully bound. And essentially it has the, the word in Arabic. And then it says, for example, Ismi al-Maha. And I hope I pronounced that right. But that apparently means yeah. my name is, an, is Oryx. Which is really sweet. yes. <laughs> so the re- so there's a, there's different parts to the book. So I didn't want to just write um, a book for children to learn how to speak Arabic, but I really wanted to, get to connect it with the region. So um, and then also connect it to the way children learn, which is on a repetitive basis. So the first page um, is uh, that falcon flying high in the sky, and then on the next. The opposite page is Marhaba, Kefahalik, and it's hello, how are you? So 
be in its um, falcon flying in the blue sky. So on the left page, you have colors, some phrases, and numbers. And then on the opposite page is um, just some key phrases, you know, for like, hello, how are you, for children to learn. But all of the animals come from the Arabic and um, Middle Eastern regions. So you have, um, you have uh, uh, oryxes, you have falcon, you have Arabian horses, um, even camels and ostrich, um, uh, and even hyraxes. It's brilliant. Um, you're, all different. Yeah. So you're <laughs> literally, you the, com- sorry, carry on. No, no, no. So, I mean, as you turn the pages, the number of animals increases as the um, as as you turn the pages, so children can learn how to count as well. Um, so yeah, so just they get that repetitiveness, and it really is just as far as for them getting their 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 start and get building up their confidence in starting to learn the language, but also the parents as well. I mean, you get a real sense there, um, both both the, with the content of the book, that you also wanted to make sure that you were paying attention to Arab culture and national identity. You know, you've got the national animal, animals there. I mean, in some countries, if you come and live there and you want to have residency, you're you're required to take a language test and, and a test on, on what you understand about the country. Certainly it happens in Britain. Uh, quite extraordinary in many ways that that people don't have to do that here. I mean, I suppose maybe not. you're not becoming a, uh, you know, you're not beginning a passport, so, so there's less of an obligation. But you'd think that maybe we might have to take a national identity test to talk, at least, you know, what is the national animal of the UAE? It's quite interesting that adults aren't required to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, maybe not a test, but even if there was like a, a welcoming packet, if you will, to teach us all a little bit about the basics of the country country um and um and the culture and just to um just to have that sense of of um uh information and mindfulness on the country that you're that you're relocating to and moving to um and just yeah something in simplistic forms like that so Mm. and that's why you know i was trying to achieve maybe so many things with the book um but that way it can identify with so many um so many other people in the region Absolutely multitasking at its very best. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Author Heidi Young. Her book is called Speak in Arabic Together. You can find it online very easily. I just did. Uh, She's actually a cybersecurity expert. uh, But as you just heard, got writing that book when she was trying to uh, basically read during COVID alongside her son and teach him Arabic. Uh, Fantastic to hear from Heidi. Uh, Alyssa has been sending in lots of messages about learning Arabic. Uh, She says that, uh, oh, let me... Let me pick. Uh, Have you noticed that even Emiratis use English words in their speech, the younger generation specifically, whereas older Emiratis do tend to avoid English at times? I think that schools will be able to implement this sort of pro-Arabic and pro-national identity culture. uh, But how will universities integrate it? It is tricky. Uh, Natasha also got in touch saying uh, that my son is excellent at Arabic, but actually it's still his least favourite lesson at school. He says the classes just aren't fun and everyone doesn't like it. It's a real shame because he should be loving and embracing the language living in the United Arab Emirates. Interesting. Maybe uh, indeed the style of education, the style of learning Arabic might need to change in some schools. I have to say in 
in my kids' school, uh, they're not at RGS Guildford Dubai. They're in another British curriculum school. Uh, they seem to really enjoy their Arabic and the teacher seems to be really effervescent and enthusiastic. So I think that's probably a school-specific scenario. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Okay, let's turn our attention uh, to the main topic for this hour on Ion Education. Uh, It is, as you can imagine to do with A-level results because thousands of students, thousands of pupils uh, in the last 24 hours got their A-level results. It emerges that they actually did better than their UK counterparts, uh, which is very good news and and congratulations to them. Uh, But it has sort of got us thinking and I do like to play devil's advocate slightly on the radio because I just, when you see all of these results coming through and people getting A-stars and A's and then you look ahead into the future to what the the landscape, the work landscape is going to look like in the fourth uh, industrial revolution. And you just wonder whether or not the A-levels are preparing students uh, and indeed whether degrees are preparing students for that future world of work. So on that rather sort of murky woolly subject. I've invited two, and Zina has organised for them to come in, uh, two fantastic guests who are going to bring light where there is shade and clarity where there is confusion. I'm joined uh, in the studio uh, by Hugh Martin. He is the Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer for the British University in Dubai. Good morning, Hugh. How are you? Good afternoon, Hugh. How good, are you? good afternoon. Good to see you again. My goodness, I need the caffeine to kick in. <laughs> I know the feeling. I, I really do. Uh, we've also got uh, Fiona McKenzie in the studio. She is head of Carfax Education right here in the UAE. Hi, good afternoon, Fiona. Good afternoon, Georgia. Good to be Nearly here. Nearly did it again. <laughs> uh, really lovely to have you both in the studio to discuss this topic. Uh, Fiona, let's start with you. Uh, UAE pupils doing better than the ones in the UK. Are you surprised by this? Better exam results? Um, n- not entirely, no. I mean, I think they had a, a much better education experience during the pandemic. I mean, first thing I want to say actually is huge congratulations to these kids they've come through two tough years yeah it's been really I know the words massively overused unprecedented but genuinely in education it is completely unprecedented and they've they've done it they've done exams and they've got the results and you know by and large they've done really really well so huge congrats to to them um have they done? They've done better than their British counterparts. I think the education system here is extremely well set up. Obviously, it's, it's mostly kind of private education system, um, and we've got great teachers out here, and we've got really motivated kids and really supportive parents. So, yeah, no, I'm not surprised. <laughs> that is good news. I mean, I remember we we talked about this very briefly yesterday, uh, and the head teacher that we had on from Brighton pointed out that these pupils who took these A levels. It's the first time they've taken full-on exams because they didn't have to take their GCSE exams, did they? No, first time in the exam hall. First exam yeah. hall nerves that they've had in their, in their kind of academic career. It's so. a big deal, those moments in the exam hall. I think we can all remember it. I still have nightmares. Uh, I have a recurring nightmare that I'm going into an exam and I've actually not done the module. And and I mean, as an adult, I have that fear, which shows you how deep-rooted the psychological impact of exams can be. Um, okay, so... We've praised the students for getting good grades. Now I'm going to completely undermine the whole process by saying, do they still matter? Do A-level results still matter? And I'm going to ask you of that 
few, uh, Fiona, I'm going to ask you that first. And then, of course, I'm going to go to the, the university admissions officer and find out what he thinks as well. Hugh Martin's here as well. Uh, so, Fiona, what do you think? Do they still matter? Are they still a big deal? Uh, yes, yes, they are. If your pathway is to go to university, if you're aiming for a top university, uh, then your A-level grades are, are even more mission critical than they've ever been before because it's getting more and more competitive to get into those, you know, top globally ranked universities. So from that point of view, they are. But you know what? There's lots of different paths for different people. So, you know, if if academia isn't your thing um, and lots of students will have taken alternative qualifications like BTECs, um, which also will get you to university, the T-levels, which they've introduced in the UK this year, are a more vocational qualification. So there are other pathways apart from A-levels. Um, and I think, you know, to your point at the beginning, you know, the world is changing. Education is, is changing along with it to provide, I think, a more varied skill set. So uh, Hugh Martin, Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer uh, at British University in Dubai. You're not actually the admissions officer, but I'm sure you know a great deal about it. Uh, How important when you look at a student, how important are their A-level results? Are they still literally the be all and end all for how you get people into your through your doors? Yeah, I mean, they are, obviously, I should say, you know, there are other exams available. Um, Of course, it's not just A-levels, there's IB and other things taken here in the UAE. But of course, exactly as Fiona said, to get into a university, there is a tariff. A tariff is our fancy way of saying it's an entry point. But I liked Fiona's example of different paths. I would say it's like different set of rooms in front of students right now. A-level is just a key to one particular room. All of those rooms then have doors beyond them to the next stage. You shouldn't be thinking of A-levels. I think this is part of the problem in the media as the only way that you will succeed in a career because this is literally just a step to the next stage. After that stage, you'll need other things. You'll need on-the-job training. You'll need retraining. Those of us that have changed our careers that I talked about last time I was here have done that through our career. I don't even remember my A-levels. I mean, I do because I'm in education. But you know what I mean. It's, it's not something which is the be-all and end-all. So I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people now on Twitter are saying to students, don't panic if you didn't get the grades you wanted. That's really good advice because it may be that this isn't the time for you. But there will be gap years. There will be other things that you'll do that will get you ready. Even if you get the results now, university might be something you need to think about in a year or two's time. Many students do that. So I think this, this, this pressure that's put on these young people to think that if they don't get it today, it's all over. It isn't. This is just the beginning. Really good advice there, actually. And I have to say, I didn't get the grades that I expected. I had to go through a process called clearing. And I ended up doing a completely different subject at a completely different university. I actually did a... Um, a mixed degree for the first year. I did uh, English, French and philosophy, which was, oh no, psychology. <laughs> there you go, which was fascinating. Uh, but then I then I swapped in the second year to English Lit, which is what I'd wanted to do all along. So, you know, your gradual, and then, you know, obviously ended up where I wanted to be eventually, you know, did an MA, et cetera, et cetera. But I, certainly I couldn't see that path on that day that the envelope came through. And instead of the A's I was predicted were the, were the miserable B's that I got in my mind. Nothing wrong with a B, I have to be so. Uh, I mean, Fiona, if someone's got that, you know, if someone's had that disappointing news and they've had to, gl- you know, you log on now, but they've had to look at their parents with, you know, sad eyes. What would be your advice to them now? Can they still get into university if they didn't get the grades? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and you, you just sort of mentioned clearing. I mean, I think the first thing is, yes, it is deeply disappointing and devastating for these children who've worked so hard. And of course, part of that has been this kind of recalibration of the grades this year, because we've gone from this very kind of boom period with the teacher assess grades and they're trying to kind of drag that back into some kind of normal thing. So that that's that's been kind of tough. But no, there are still plenty of opportunities out there. And I think you've just got to kind of reset 
set your mind and go, okay, that pattern didn't work for me, that person worked for me today. So what else are my options? And the first thing I need, you know, you need to do, well, first of all, call up your university where you were offered a place and say, is there any kind of leeway on this and try and convince them. Um, if they say no, no dice, that, that's not going to work. You've still got your insurance offer. Maybe that one could work. If you've missed both of those, then you will automatically go into clearing. Um, and there's an amazing website, the UCAS Clearing website. Go on to that, put in the subject that you're interested in studying, see what other universities have got spaces. You know, there's, there's, it's a really dynamic kind of uh, website. It's changing all the time. So there's all sorts of stuff coming up. So look into that, call those universities up. But if you're going to call those universities up, do be prepared because it will be like a mini interview. So have your grades with you, have your personal statement with you, have your UCAS ID with you. And, and you know, you're interviewing them and they're kind of interviewing you. And those sorts of decisions can be made really quickly over like a 10 minute call. Um, you do have a cooling off period, don't worry. Um, but yeah, the, so bottom line, lots of opportunities, but you've got to get out there and do the research and you've got to ring up. And it has to be the student that rings up, not the mum or dad. The universities need to speak to you, not, not to anybody else. Yeah, it shows a level of maturity for you to ring as well. Exactly. I, I mean, I don't know how the universities here work, Hugh. Are you part of clearing as well or is it separate? It is separate. That's an important point, Georgia. Clearing is a specifically UK thing. And, and Fiona mentioned it. It's, it is so dynamic. I remember almost fondly, although it was horrendous stress, what a clearing office looks like in a UK university right now. You can't imagine. Think, <laughs> think Shakespeare Road at the busiest time and it's, you know, and that's not anything close to it. So, yes, it is exciting and dynamic. But here it's very different. In some ways, we're more flexible because we can take offers. We have entry points at different points of the year, for example, September and January in my university. So that's quite different to the traditional academic year. We can be more flexible over certain levels in the sense that we set the tariff, that point I mentioned earlier on, at which we will let you in. But we can negotiate with you. Now, here, of course, you mentioned students ringing up. We do deal with parents more often. That's a cultural thing. That's fine. That's what we're used to in the UAE. They're paying the bills. They're paying the bills. <laughs> but you will find here that universities are more approachable in the sense of directly. You can go directly to a university here and say, I didn't quite make it. What else is available to me? Uh, and that, that will offer you opportunities you may not be, uh, have been aware of when you first looked. If you are really set on a particular degree... Remember, those of us in education are quite tricky. We use different terms for what is actually the same thing. So computer science at one university might be IT at another university. Look carefully at what the subject is. You'll find it's probably similar. So don't rule out degrees just because the name might not be quite what you were looking for. Well, that's exactly what I did. So I had to accept a, a sort of mixed degree for the first year. I can't even remember what it was called now and did my English psychology and French in order to then move in the second year to what my my solid degree ended up being, which is, of course, English literature. It also meant I didn't have to do linguistics. Which was miserable. The <laughs> linguistics module that you had to do in the first year at Newcastle. Ah, you wouldn't want to see that. So I skipped linguistics. I know nothing about linguistics at all. Apart from my friend Alistair, who did Korean and linguistics. I mean, what sort of barbarian picks that? <laughs> masochist picks that as a degree. Korean. And he was just, he's Scottish. Korean and <laughs> linguistics. Anyway, we will be continuing this conversation in a minute, namely because I want to address that subject, whether or not the A-levels you took have any impact on the degree that you then go on, go on to study, and then whether or not that degree has any impact on the profession that you then go into. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. 
We are discussing A-levels and how pupils here in the UAE can use their exam results to their advantage. Uh, pupils here did particularly well compared to their UK counterparts. They beat a global trend of getting lower grades than predicted. Uh, I know that I got lower grades than were predicted in my mocks, so I know how that feels. Uh, students in the UK also received lower A-level grades this year compared to the past two years when, of course, exams were cancelled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead of doing exams, uh, their grades were decided and recommended by their teachers. Uh, so interesting to see that grades have gone down this year. Uh, nearly 10% in the UK. Uh, A-stars decreased by 4.5%. This year, A-level pupils were back in the exam halls. Uh, and for nearly all of them, it was the first time they've ever sat formal exams because, of course, they missed out on GCSEs as well because uh, those were in 2020, which were disrupted by COVID-19. Uh, now, to discuss how your A-levels can help you uh, find your way, how your A levels can give you direction into the rest of your career. I'm joined now by Lisa Grace Wilson. She's the editor of Teach Middle East, uh, also a, a former teacher. Hi, Lisa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Georgia? It's a pleasure. Uh, lovely to have you in the studio. Uh, just wonder, do you have any A-level or exam level kids this year in your family? I know you've got, got a family. Yeah, I, I actually, my niece just got her results yesterday um, and she missed out on her place to UCL. Um, she got a B when she was predicted an A in one of her subjects. So, yeah, we, we're actually personally impacted in my family by the results going a little bit lower than normal this year. Oh, well, my fingers crossed that she'll still be able to persuade them to take her or that she'll be able to go through the clearing process. Is that what she's doing now? So now she's actually been accepted into her second choice. Um, and of course, she's not thrilled, but um, she's not devastated. Uh, very interesting. Do you know, I know, um, and I didn't even know that you were allowed to do this, but I know one guy who really, really wanted to get into Cambridge and he just didn't get the grades. And so he just went back to school and did his A-levels all over again. He just did the whole year again, which I was unaware that you were allowed to do that. And then he went to Cambridge. Now he's an oil broker in Singapore earning millions of pounds a year. So, uh, you know, maybe it's worth, maybe it was worth that investment by his parents. Um, OK, so uh, UAE pupils doing better than the ones in the UK. Does that surprise you? Doesn't. Not no. one bit. I mean, we're talking about my colleagues here and um, their work in getting students ready and how well the schools have done here, especially during COVID and distance learning. No surprise. Um, the UAE did shine as a beacon and an example of how you can transition from in-person to hybrid to distance and back again. And the resilience shown, like I think I should just use this opportunity to say a massive congratulations to my colleagues in education who've done brilliantly over these past two plus years with all the dynamics at play but still doing the utmost to get their students ready for their exams. I'm not shocked. OK, so now I feel really churlish asking this question. How important, though, are A-level results now as we look ahead into the future, as we look into the fourth industrial revolution and the workplace? You know, is, are A-level results going to be relevant in, in a decade's time? Don't feel bad. I, had, I spent the whole of yesterday talking about this it, it, within my family. Um, I'm going to sound really 
bad, but this this truth, I think they need to be phased out. Um, don't shoot me, heads of schools. I'm still your friend. <laughs> I just think they are they are going the way of the dinosaurs. Um, I'm personally kind of questioning. My sons are not yet in secondary, but I'm now eyeing the IB for them. I'm now thinking of what other paths they could take and being very much open-minded because A-levels and traditional school, the way we know it, is going. It's not sustainable, especially with what industry is demanding. So, yeah, probably is right time for a change, if you, you know, if I should say so. What do you think is wrong with the curriculum that leads children towards those A-level exams? It is definitely too narrow. Very, very exam focused, quite pressured. I don't know if you remember your A-levels, Georgia. I remember mine. Yeah. And I missed a couple of grades. And I remember studying and studying. And, and you know, at the end of the day, today, I can't remember too much of what I studied. It wasn't practical. It wasn't beneficial to what I'm doing now. In fact, my A-levels were Spanish, literature, um, biology, and uh, I think English, yeah. And yes, some of it is sort of kind of being used, but biology, seriously, I don't even know why I did that. I think we ought to come up with a system where students are getting a more rounded approach that will lead them into, you know, a variety of careers because people aren't going into one career and staying there anymore. And so A-levels that are so narrow and so focused, I'm not sure they're fit for purpose anymore. So what stage should children, do you think, be starting to think about their career, about the the workplace? Because I, although we had career advice when I was choosing my A-levels, I didn't really have any idea about what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether I was choosing the right A-levels to take me in that direction. Shouldn't there be a sort of, shouldn't school be a period when when pupils are allowed to just enjoy learning, enjoy the education, and that maybe a bit like in the States where, you know, for the first year at university, you're not sort of required to choose your major, that we give students the opportunity to have this broad spectrum of education and maybe A-levels are too narrow for that or maybe they actually allow that? Currently, in their current state, they don't allow that. And I do agree with you. I think school, especially all the way up to maybe the first year of university, should be about exploring the things that you like, the things that you're passionate about, kind of leaning into the things that you feel you are able to do well. And then I think as you get older, you, you know, your career will come. Um, And it won't stay the same. Like I said before, I think careers are changing. I started off teaching in secondary school. Then I went to primary school. Then I went into school leadership. Now I'm into media um, and and marketing. And, you know, you you can't narrow people in. And I think A-levels in their current state, they are a little bit too narrow. Really interesting stuff. Uh, Lisa Grace Wilson, as always, great to have you on the radio. Editor of Teach Middle East and, of course, as you just heard, a former teacher. Interesting insights there. Lots of messages coming through on the subject of A-levels and their value. Uh, Ali also raises an important point, which, of course, we mentioned earlier. Uh, Why are you comparing UK A-level results uh, to private schools here in the UAE? We pay fees here. A very good point. News is next. And then we will be returning to our studio guest who's been sitting by and waiting 
uh, for a bit, which is great. Hugh Martin uh, from the British University in Dubai and Fiona McKenzie, Head of Carfax Education in the UAE. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. Hello there, welcome back. Yes, we're still discussing A-level results and the impact that they have on your life. That's off the back of the results coming through in the last 24 hours. Now, for thousands of students, that time, basically this last sort of day, might have felt like a real turning point in their life. But actually, to what extent do your A-level results really define you? Tell me what you studied, if you're listening now, uh, and what you're doing now. Does it actually have any parallels? I have two fantastic guests who've very patiently stayed in the studio with me. Uh, Hugh Martin, Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai, and also Fiona McKenzie, who's Head of Carfax Education. Both of you, thank you for staying in the studio. I appreciate it. Uh, Also, for informing me a bit more on the discussion that we're about to have. Uh, Do you know, I'm actually going to ask you, what a levels did you get and did it does it have any parallels to what you're doing now Hugh let's start with you we were just talking about that actually so a bit like you Georgia I did um, an English literature and language degree uh, at Oxford University but I did very traditional English history and French A levels but and you might think oh that's why you're running a university now no so I left um, university and I went into retail I worked at a well-known big big stationery firm in the UK and I unloaded lorries and I stacked shelves because in those days that's what you did if you wanted to run a store you learned from the shop floor up and I eventually ended up going to head office but it's now 30 years later showing my age when I can see those transferable skills that I learned through my A-levels and my degree come back so I would politely disagree with Lisa our guest earlier I agree with a lot of what she said and she's right about trying to widen the curriculum but she said her English didn't help her perhaps or her A-levels didn't but the reason she's so articulate now the reason she's editing a magazine now the reason she was in school leadership is the skills she picked up that she may not have realised at the time, but they have come back full circle. Fiona, do you agree? And what were your A-levels? I did, uh, gosh, it's going a long way back now, geography, French and English. And then I went on to study geography at St Andrews. And the joy of a Scottish university is that you can chop and change your subjects. So I got to the end of my first year of geography and thought... Actually, I don't really like doing this. And so I switched to history of art, which I absolutely loved. So I actually graduated with a history of art and management degree because you can combine weird things in Scottish universities as well. Um, and then I got married and had babies. So, <laughs> so, so that, that stopped everything well, for a while. Yeah, and then, and then I went back and I taught history of art, which I absolutely loved. Never thought I'd do that, but I absolutely loved. And then got to know kind of lots about schools and my education uh, and therefore ended up as an education consultant and guiding people through this university journey. So it all adds up to something. Everything adds up to something in my That book. is very cool. And I have to say, whenever anyone goes to a careers advisor, they don't, when I was at school, they just tended to skip tip uh, to stick to the top ticket careers you know accountant lawyer uh, doctor nurse journalist I suppose did actually tick that box now you've got things like futurist or chief transformational officer you know careers that no one would have ever considered in any way at all and then I mean you didn't do history of art as an A-level and then went on to teach it Um, okay so let's ask the value of A-level and degrees Uh, Lisa definitely who we just heard from Teach Middle East definitely thinks that A-levels are not fit for purpose would you agree with that Fiona? 
Um, I think it's definitely a debate that that is rife at the moment. And actually, there's been a very interesting uh, Times uh, Education Commission in the UK, which has come up with a recommendation that we should definitely broaden that spectrum more towards a kind of IB, sort of five or six subject combination at the end. Um, and I can see that because you know a lot of people drop maths and or English uh, GCSE level and never do them again. Um, I, one of my children went to university in America and uh, oh, an American university, and she had to do maths in her first year, which well, she'd given up maths after GCSE. And it was a real struggle. She couldn't go, go to the second year until she'd passed the maths module. So I do think that losing those skills so early on in the kind of British curriculum is is not ideal. So I think, yeah, I think it's right, right for change. OK, uh, let's expand it further, Hugh. Uh, what about degrees? Do you think they are preparing pupils for the future workplace? <laughs> yeah, you knew I'm going to be controversial because I've said this before. Yeah. Um, Look, I have a, a, a genuine problem with this idea that universities, or even schools for that matter, exist to train students to be job ready. I prefer to use the term life ready. You know, Lisa made a point that we've made many times, many of us, you know, I've had three different careers in my life. I was a, in business, I was an academic, and now I'm a senior administrator. None of us know what we're going to do in the future. So the idea that a university degree is there to prepare you for one particular career is not only nonsense, but it's also financially not viable because you might think you want to be an engineer now. But look, engineering has changed in the five years I've been in Dubai. So in 15 years time, what you learn will be completely gone. And if you're lucky, you'll be in a firm or with a company that's training you as you go. And that's what industry should be doing. So I kind of bulk at this idea that university or even A-levels, the, the point of our discussion, that's the be all on level of everything. You know, you start there and if you don't get what you wanted, you've kind of messed up your life rubbish this is literally the beginning and your degree is similar it's a way to get into that next room that i talked about and also because so many more people are coming back to master's degrees now to postgraduate study maybe phds even you've got chances through your life to upskill and reskill so please don't think of it as you know i'm doing this degree for one thing only apart from perhaps medicine there's always an exception for medicine there is yes thank goodness although some of my mates who did medicine and barely scraped through some of the exams i'm not sure i'd want to see them in the er <laughs> to be honest, you know who you are. Actually, no, they don't because they're not in this country. So I could probably name them and I'd be fine. Um, OK, well, that does. But then that crystallises the sort of the, the big question of why a degree then? If by the time you come out in three years, it's going to be a different landscape. But should people just be going straight into the workplace? I think that's the important question, personally. And, and I will, of course, argue for degrees because I've moved into education later in my life. But look, I think there are routes for everyone. The education is I just like this hierarchy that says if you didn't go to uni, you're not somehow as good as the people that do. We all have different routes. Some of us go to top universities and don't do as well. Some of us go to really unusual um, off-scale universities that, that do a completely different vocational course and do extremely well. So don't get pushed into that hierarchy. For me, a degree is about those transferable skills. And I love the idea that in now, compared to when I was at university, there are so many more options to students to go to university. There are universities for so many more subjects. There are universities at so many different levels. There's more international study. There's more opportunities to do sandwich courses in business, if that's your thing. So I think the, you know, we shouldn't be pushing students into this way of thinking that if you don't get into Oxford or Harvard, you've somehow your second, you know, we talk about the second choice. Yeah. It's second best, but it isn't second best. It's just a different choice. My husband, who went to Cambridge, would definitely want to differ on that. He's very proud that he's Oxbridge and likes to bring it up in as many conversations as he can. And in fact, often I get referred to as not Oxbridge and therefore somehow sneered upon. 
Is that reasonable, Fiona? No, Thank absolutely you. not. <laughs> there we go. I've got that. I've got that official now. I will be playing that, that clip to him, if none well, other. Also, I would add, he went to Cambridge. Look, we, well, those of us who went to Oxford, we don't do that thing. I just have to do that. <laughs> Uh, fantastic to have such a wide-ranging conversation with both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Really interesting. Uh, definitely not worth throwing out the baby and the bathwater. But if you've done your A-levels, do not feel depressed if you haven't got good grades. You're going to be just fine. Uh, thank you very much to my guest, uh, Hugh Martin uh, from the British University in Dubai and Fiona McKenzie, who is head of Carfax Education in the UAE. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.